Hi, and welcome to episode 11 of VSoup, the audio-only virtualization podcast with more talent than X Factor. Uh, this time we've uh, we've been joined by Scott Merrill, which is uh, kind of fun for for me personally because that's a, this is a guy I've been working with on uh, the Habari blog platform uh, way back. I'm not that active there anymore, but this is actually the first time I've actually been able to talk to the guy, which is uh, kind of funny when we're doing virtualization stuff. So, how are you doing, Scott? Very well. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be a part of this. Yeah, it should be fun. Um, speaking of other things than PHP and WordPress and Habari and open source stuff, so uh, it's uh, it's a different setting that I'm that, that I ordinarily talk to you about. So it should be it should be a good good time. Yeah, it's it's neat that uh, our lives intersect in uh, these multiple different ways. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. So, Scott, um, I've, I've got down in my notes here that uh, you know you're, you're a virtualization professional, but not quite as we know, um, and, and that you're successfully living life without VMware, which for some it feel, must feel like life without oxygen. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, if, if you'd like to tell me a little bit more, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, where I work, we uh, we actually do have two VMware clusters. Uh, so it's not entirely life without VMware, but we are very strenuously in the process of migrating away from VMware. And we are going to Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization for our Linux hosts, or our Linux clients, rather. And we are going to Microsoft's Hyper-V for our uh, Microsoft server uh, virtualization platform. So I am a Red Hat, and uh, that was a strong motivator for us to choose Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization. It allows us to, to leverage the skills that I already have with Red Hat Networking and Red Hat Enterprise Linux on the virtualization host itself. It's a, a uh, RHEL uh, running uh, the, the latest versions of the KVM hypervisor. And we have seen, uh, unfortunately, we don't have really scientific results to share because it's different hardware and different backend SAN structure. But we, but, you know, if, if we do our best to eliminate those performance gains, we're still seeing what we feel are some pretty substantial uh, performance benefits from running on Rev. So have you, have you seen actual performance issues running in VMware? Running? We have, yeah, I've been with the company about uh, nine months now, and so I don't have a tremendous history with the VM infrastructure, the VMware infrastructure, but everybody that I interact with on a daily basis tells me that our VMware guests have slowly started to slow down over time. They're all just, uh, you know, they're not as snappy as they were when they first started, whether that's, you know, system cruft built up or some other infrastructure problem under the hood. uh, No one's been able to identify to me, but the systems that we've migrated from VMware to Rev, it's night and day. I mean, they're they're substantially more responsive. Just uh, getting the SSH prompt when you SSH into the server is uh, noticeably faster. So, are these? Did you do um, a, a V2V migration, or were they fresh build systems on the uh, the new platform? For most of the VMware uh, guests, we have done V2V. Um, there's a, a really nice V2V 
process available to Red Hat Linux, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Um, it does a really nice job. It, it actually mounts the guest image, removes the VMware tools, and installs the, the Vert.io drivers for the, uh, the virtual disk and virtual network interface. That's interesting. So, I mean, was the, the the VMware environment was it sort of fully up to date? Was it sort of running you know, four point one with uh, power virtualized drivers, or you know, has that been part of the change that you, you've been moving to a newer version? Uh, again, unfortunately, I don't manage that infrastructure. Um, we are, in fact, running on VMware three point five, um, so I know it's not the latest four four one. So that's that's certainly going to be an issue in terms of performance comparisons. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, as soon as, as soon as any competitive marketing people sort of saw it, uh, you know, uh, RHEV four hundred percent faster, then they're going to go absolutely nuts. Um, but uh, no, you know, it's it's all about a real world experience, and, and not uh, not just a sort of a, a poster boy for a um, a conference. You know, like I might have noticed that Microsoft has done that a couple of times with their their comparisons with Hyper V. Um, that they'll have got this really specific, very, very niche um, example of Hyper-V performing well. And yeah, it was because they had VMware running on a couple of clockwork mice. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, it just, it just wasn't really a, a viable comparison. But you, know, you don't always have time to do a, um, you know, an academic quality benchmark between your systems because, well, frankly, you're not interested in that. Your your um, objective as a, an infrastructure provider, you know, or infrastructure team within your company is to provide the the best service you can. And if you can do that by changing your hypervisor, brilliant. Uh, I, I'm interested as to why you said decided to sort of split up. So you know, rather than that, you know, you made this conscious decision to go multi hypervisor. Um, yeah, we decided um, because each of our major platforms, Red Hat Linux and Microsoft Windows, provides their own hypervisor, we felt that it makes sense to do native virtualization on that host or on that platform. So, you know, Microsoft, as is often the case, uh, you know, whether it's it's proven or just anecdotal suspicion, you know, they, they have lots of tricks under the hood to make their stuff work better. Right, so we don't have any expectation that Hyper-V would really be a good virtualization platform for our Linux hosts. And uh, although Red Hat Enterprise virtualization does support Windows machines, Windows guests, um, my counterpart and I are Windows are are um, Linux experts, and we don't want to be involved in supporting Windows machines at all. So we're happy to have the Windows admins do all of their own virtualization and manage all their own infrastructure, allowing us to focus on our core competencies as well. So you're going from one uh, one bigger VMware cluster to two split-up clusters with separate hardware then? Uh, yeah, we're actually going from two older VMware clusters to two virtualization, two separate hypervisor solutions right now. Um, I think they're actually all on the same. The new clusters will all be on the same SAN back end. Um, and what, what again, storage is that, if you don't mind me asking? It's it's an EMC something or other. Okay. Uh, yeah, the the farther away I, I am from hardware, the happier I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why we virtualize. 
Um, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, I mean, the the workloads you're running on top of it, it, it seems like you, you're quite sort of um, siloed between Windows and um, Linux. Uh, with the, the workloads you're running equally siloed, is there one application which is pulling resources from both of you, or have you got your Windows suite of apps and the uh, Linux suite of apps as well? The no, the it is very much siloed. That's a that's a good ad, uh, statement. The Linux infrastructure we have um, is varied. We've got a number of internal application servers. We do a number of uh, internal web hosting solutions. We are looking at migrating our physical um, uh, public facing web hosting solution. We host uh, several hundred domains for various uh, services we provide, various clients. Um, we also have a very robust JBoss infrastructure, and we are looking pretty seriously at moving that from physical hosts into the virtualization cluster as well. We'll start with our development and our QA hosts, and, and based on our, our uh, experiences there, we'll make a final determination probably sometime either late this year or early next year as to whether or not we'll move the production JBoss cluster onto the VMware. Uh, the obvious advantage from, for some of this stuff is that, you know, I'm sorry, not VMware to, to Rev. Uh, the obvious advantage to, to some of this is that the virtualization gives us much easier fault tolerance. We don't have to have a physical cluster of devices for one application server to, to have, you know, the robust uptime that we need when we can just have one instance running on a virtualized, virtualized cluster. It can bounce between the nodes you know, easy enough for us. So it should, in the long run, streamline our support costs. Yeah, because I, I would imagine that at one point you must have a lot of um, duplication of services, particularly around the management space. You know, if you've got your Windows guys are going to have their preferred um, monitoring, maintenance, backup uh, services, or have you got like a shared? No, actually, conveniently enough there, we do have a, a single backup solution across all of our platforms. We use a single monitoring solution. Uh, we use Xenos. Xenos, I don't know how you guys prefer to pronounce that. Um, that's our, our, our monitoring solution, and that monitors all of the infrastructure we have. So, so in that respect, um, the, the bifurcation of the virtualization isn't going to be introducing anything new to us. Okay, so... Although you might be siloed in certain aspects, there, there is still um, a fair amount of uh, collaboration and corroboration between the uh, the two aspects that you run. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's uh, fantastic. I suppose, yeah, as you say, it hasn't actually been that much of a shift. So rather than go from, as you said, sounds like you know, separate VMware cluster for Windows boxes and separate VMware cluster from Linux boxes, it's just that with Hyper-V, you're then adding system center into the equation. If you're going to be right. running any any substantial um, Hyper-V installation, you'd be nuts not to be running system center. Um, so I don't know whether you know you're going to start duplicating that. And I, I'd love to know a little bit more about what Red Hat uses for its um, sort of management console now. The, the, admittedly, Hyper-V requires a fair amount of back-end. You've got to have operations manager, you need to have virtualization manager as well. But So what does um, Red Hat sort of need in terms of its management overhead? 
So Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization is building on the open source KVM hypervisor, uh, the kernel virtualization uh, solution that's in the mainline kernel. But to manage all of the guests and the, the migration between hosts in a clustered environment, they're actually using a product. Red Hat is using a product uh, that they acquired from a purchase of a company called Kumaranet. Um, and it is a Windows ASP.NET based solution. So it's it's kind of funny that in order to enjoy all this great Red Hat open source uh, uh, virtualization, we have to rely very heavily on a Windows Server 2008 installation. You can smell with the a, irony from here. That's oh yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's a and then it's a SQL backend um, where we actually have a Microsoft SQL Server installation conveniently enough. So we just used that. Uh, I believe you can use MSDE. Um, or the the desktop engine or whatever that is. Oh, okay, so um, the very one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the light one. I believe you can use that. Um, but we had the full installation handy anyways, so we used that. Um, Red Hat is um, vigorously working towards a native Linux solution for the management console. That will be my understanding is that's going to be a, a JBoss application. Um, now, um, so, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, JBoss is it, that's kind of like a sort of almost a Java platform as a server, isn't it? Or that's correct. Yeah, it's a it's a Java enterprise uh, application server. Okay. Yeah. 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 So when they move, when they when they do that, so Red Hat just had their big Red Hat Summit in Boston a couple of weeks ago, and they made a number of big announcements about their work towards this. Um, Linux-based management console, and uh, we're all chomping at the bit for them to release it because it means we won't have to use Microsoft Internet Explorer to manage these applications or manage these uh, guests anymore. So right now, to make this, to be able to manage our guests, we have to you have to use MSIE because it's a, a very thick .NET installation uh, on the client. And so we're running all that through a Citrix uh, server internally. So because my counterpart and I run Linux exclusively on our desktops, so managing our hosts involves a number of jumps to uh, hoops to jump through. Um, but but frankly, it's not that big of a price to pay for us. the uh, The performance has been fine. The application works great. Um, it's fairly intuitive to use. It it, it presents all the stuff you need to do. Um, there, it's not as robust as the virtual infrastructure client from VMware. Um, it's it's uh, it's noticeably different uh, in terms of what it can and cannot do, as is the the Rev architecture in general. Um, one of the biggest shortcomings we've encountered is is that you cannot snapshot a running guest. You have to shut the guest down to snapshot it. Um, but that's not terribly burdensome on us because we aren't doing a lot of snapshotting in general. It's just that you know when you want to do it, it's a, you had to shut it down. That's kind of a pain sometimes. So you're not taking um, sort of machine level backups then? No, we're not. We're doing. Uh, we're installing the backup agent on our our on our guests and installing backing them up that way. I suppose again, these sorts of things are very workload dependent. If you've got a, a machine that you can roll out from template. Or uh, assuming there is a, a Red Hat equivalent of a template VM, but you know, to do the data restore is a relatively um, trivial job, and it's that much quicker to just redeploy another VM than yeah, don't don't bother with a um, image-based uh, backup. But yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah and I, templating I is very, very easy. Very 
Cool. That's, yeah. That's good. Sorry, uh, uh, Ed, you. Yeah, something to say. Oh no, I was pretty just, much what I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was the same exact thing. But in your Hyper V environment, since you can live snapshot with new uh, Veeam coming out that's supporting uh, Hyper V, are you guys you guys thinking about using that or? I don't know. I can't answer anything about the, the Windows infrastructure. Uh, I'm I am intentionally uh, ignorant of a lot of what goes on over there because I can't provide very much meaningful help to what they do. So I just I just kind of stay away and, and let them work through the you know, to the best of their abilities because I don't have anything to offer them. You're you're based in Columbus, Ohio, aren't you? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So it's VM Doug, I guess, from from Veeam. So he'll probably jump on your door now, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. try to get access to your to your Windows guys. Well, Veeam's <laughs> US office is is uh, in Columbus. So yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Super. Look, look for a lot of guys wearing green, essentially. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like they they will stalk you, and but they do have cupcakes, so you got to look on the right side. Um, <laughs> and vodka. <laughs> yeah. It's the perfect way to start the day, as far as I can. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, the management tools. Uh, one of the, the the great things, I mean, not not just Veeam, but one, one of the great things about VMware is that that third party ecosystem about it, uh, and you know, some of it is uh, a fee based ecosystem, people making money. But there's an awful lot of it that's um, free tools. So how does I mean, Red Hat obviously, you know, Linux is pretty well renowned for having a good set of uh, free tools to manage and, and monitor it but does that extend into the virtualization world or are there people who are because it is a, a you know a viable um competitor as a hypervisor are people still trying to uh, monetize the um the ecosystem around it the uh it's my understanding that currently the the uh, API solutions, the ecosystem available to Rev specifically is pretty thin. Um, Red Hat, it's my understanding that Red Hat is working to remedy that, and there will be a very robust third-party API that they will be publishing for the next major release of the uh, Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization platform in general. Uh, I have not been looking too aggressively at that because I've got enough other stuff to do on a day-to-day basis. Um, but it, it is my understanding that they are working pretty aggressively. And history indicates that Red Hat has done a pretty substantial job of open sourcing a tremendous amount of technology that they've produced, or at least working towards open sourcing it. Um, and, and at the end of the day, even you know the KVM itself is all open source. Um, Red Hat pays a number of people, the full-time Red Hat employees, to work on that product itself, just the KVM portion of the, the kernel virtualization. There's uh, a great blog by a, a Red Hat employee, uh, Richard Jones, I believe his name is. Um, and he's been doing a lot of stuff with a, a library called libguestfs, which allows you to mount a guest uh, VM image and do you know, everything you would want to do with it. Uh, and that includes Windows machines as well. I, I haven't been watching those posts very closely because that's not what we're going to do. But I have seen a number of posts from him talk about um, making registry changes and uh, you know, you know, how to simple things like how to change the desktop background from a Windows guest image uh, using libguestfs, for example. Oh, that sounds that sounds pretty neat. I mean, is is um... I guess you know financially, uh, Red Hat Enterprise is not the open, the free open source product. It is a paid for product, and 
and the hence is treated pretty much like any other enterprise solution i guess in terms of its support um and you've got the, the comparison with something like um vmware's lab flings where they just let their um developers and engineers periodically just get on and release something that they've been working on whether it's been in their free time or not and there's been some really quite heavyweight stuff that they've done um, for example you know one of them wrote a module to be able to manage Hyper-V with the VI client um, just hmm. because he thought it might be a fun thing to do so I guess that's really <laughs> the closest that we'd get from a VMware world um, although I was just reminded of you know the, the irony that you've got to use a Windows service to manage um, Red Hat it's we have the same pain with the, uh, the well, the current release 1.0 of uh, vCloud Director, um, which would only run on Red Hat with with Oracle, <laughs> and 99% of most uh, virtual center installations are Windows with SQL. Um, right, <laughs> and most of us don't want Oracle anywhere near our licensing stuff. Yeah, yeah, I don't blame you. We, we don't talk about the O word. Um, no. <laughs> Yeah, and the the Windows you know requirement for us to manage our guests is you know ultimately it's not that big of a deal because we're even in the VMware world we were still stuck that way you know the the virtual client doesn't run on Linux. True, you, you again probably had to present it via Citrix. Right, uh, right. I know a fair few people did, um, but uh, yeah, and if you've got enough Windows guys that you can kind of farm that bit out too, I guess right. it's, it's not the end of the world. Uh, you sound like you got a pretty pretty balanced mix of uh, of skill sets so you're not trying to strive for 100 percent linux or 100 percent no certainly not we're definitely uh using the tools that are best for the job um except you know when we talk about sharepoint because that's not good for any job um <laughs> unless you're a SharePoint uh, consultant in which case it's absolutely <laughs> fantastic sometimes. right much like, much like sap yep i know plenty yep. about that one yeah. It's, it's a bit cheap. But, uh, Although, that said, I, I had a play around with um, a, a new version of SharePoint this week, uh, deploying Project Server. Yes, I can hear you all shuddering. Um, <laughs> I, I, I had experience with Project Server a few years ago, and it, it's something I still have like nightmares about. But it came across the, the new version, and it, it's, it's, dare I say it, it's workable. Uh, it, it seems like a, they, they've kind of taken on the uh, the various little pain points that were abound. However, it is still trying to store all your file information in a SQL database when a symbolic <laughs> link would be just fine. However, right. that's, that's everyone's gripe. It's not just mine. So one of the things I definitely wanted to uh, make clear to everybody listening to this podcast is that one of the reasons, one of the strong reasons uh, we chose Rev, in addition to the stuff we've already talked about, is the licensing model. Um, because we we are going to be running Linux guests, you know, Red Hat Enterprise Linux guests on our uh, virtualization platform, the the licensing we've purchased allows us to run an unlimited number of guests, um, okay. which so normally the, require the Red Hat a subscription. equivalent of a Windows data center license. Um, that's exactly right. Yes, additional Windows you can have infinite guests, and if you've got you know big VMware hosts, you buy a Windows data center edition license for, yeah. for that host. 
Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so we can roll out um, any number of guests, uh, which is also which has already been a, a big save uh, in money and time for us, because we had been getting pretty close to the the number of allotments from Red Hat that we had purchased for support. And now that they're free and unlimited, we can roll out any number of tests and development instances just to, you know, kick something around, see if it works, get an idea for something. And if it doesn't, we can open bug reports on that. We can get full support on that. We don't have to worry about using CentOS or, you know, a community rebrand of the of the system, um, which for us is a big deal because we're running, we're, we're pretty aggressively going with Red Hat 6. Red Hat Enterprise Linux 6, and the CentOS community hasn't picked that up yet. They're still at CentOS 5.5. So when we test stuff and, and run the latest versions, the, we, we do get all of the support benefits from Red Hat on those guests. Okay, so and that's presumably the same, the same sort of reason for your, your not having a co-residency of uh, operating systems as well, because you then have to start uh, licensing your Hyper-V hosts Right, right. That's do, that's do, certainly um, a big issue. Do Red Hat offer a thing a little bit like um, uh, MSDN is the equivalent for your non-production stuff? We used to license all of our non-production stuff uh, under MSDN licensing, where you'd stick uh, as long as everyone accessing that system had an MSDN subscription, you're kind of covered, as I understand it. I'm uh, not a licensing specialist, um, but you're kind of covered for unlimited non-production systems and I don't quite know how the support of those would go because we never had to um, log a call with Microsoft for those particular systems but are Red Hat a little bit more strict about that? You know, I don't know. That's a very good question. I haven't looked into that. Um, they've got different tiers of support, obviously. You can do email only or phone. I, I don't know if they've got anything that would allow us to kind of skirt around the edges in that fashion. Okay and say this is you know it's a non-production system but we've noticed this kind of right right although i do love the fact you know as you say you've always got the option of of going for a community supported edition now you know i dare say they are what you might call community supported editions of windows but they're extremely dodgy but wouldn't it be brilliant if there was like frindos or something like that (laughs) slightly different coloring yeah, yeah. Reactor OS, purple, green, blue, and yellow, or something as the, uh, the 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 quadrants in the Windows logo. But for all other intents and purposes, it was Windows. Yeah, there's uh, React OS. Oh, I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's uh, it's a uh, bytecode compatible open source uh, thing that runs certain Windows applications, actually. And I saw somebody just installed React OS on a Red Hat Enterprise uh, virtualization or KVM installation, and everything worked except uh, the mouse and the network. Oh, excellent. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, so it's close, you know. <laughs> uh, but speaking of, uh, you, you mentioned Citrix. Uh, uh, pretty recently, uh, there was a Citrix Synergy, I think. There were some uh, some announcements yeah, the that big, the big uh, Citrix show. I mean, they were they yeah. were showing off their uh, oh, they can put a hypervisor on anything from your microwave upwards nowadays. <laughs> yeah, but they they got the send code accepted into the uh, the Linux ma- uh, kernel from version two six three nine or something, which makes basically you know, gives uh, Linux users uh, the possibility to choose between KVM or Send directly during the install or something. 
I'm not quite sure how that works, but seven KVM uh, kind of differ in the way they work, don't they? Uh, I mean, KVM is a add-on, while SAM is a, its own installation, much the same way as VMware is, or vSphere is. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know much about the Zen. I've I've um, it's never really caught my fancy, so I've never really paid much attention to it. Um, and I, I really I don't have a good reason for that. I just it's just never been interesting to me as a, as a technology. Um, it requires it used to require a, a special kernel. You had to have patch the kernel or get a, a, a Zen supported kernel to make it to make it available to you. Um, whereas KVM is in the mainline kernel tree. Now, if you're saying that's changed, that's great. You know, um, uh, let people choose. I mean, that's the open source way, right? Give you enough rope yeah. to, to hang yourself. Um, but uh, I, I don't know enough about Zen to, to say anything intelligent other than the name. <laughs> My understanding of it is that they got it um, accepted into the kernel, so you can basically you don't need that specialized kernel anymore. Um, which also gives Linux users a, a choice, uh, as you said, enough rope to hang yourself. But uh, yeah, that's that's great. There's there's certainly a large number of Zen installations out there. There's a lot of published documentation about how to manage Zen guests. Um, so that's great if they if they've mainlined that. I you know I I'm all for choice. I'm all for allowing people to to choose the best tool for their job. And if if uh, an organization is is heavily invested in Zen solutions right now, then that allows them to preserve that that investment. And I think that's great. So does that does that mean that I mean when you're if you do uh, have to make that choice between Zen and KVM, um, the the underlying host is it a pretty lightweight install um, in the way that sort of the SXI, um, not Hyper-V, is that you're you're literally just installing a bare kernel with a hypervisor in it and absolutely nothing. Else. Or is well, it with with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, um, um, they support the KVM on the full stack of, of their product. So you can install a Red Hat Enterprise Linux server, and it can become uh, an e you know the equivalent of an ESX server. Whereas you know within the VMware world, you've got the the service console that's the full Linux install. That's the the equivalent. The the there's also a rev. Um, I forget the name. I think it's called a Rev uh, host. That is, it's not as thin as ESXi, but it is much thinner than a full Red Hat install. And it's it's a little different in that most of the file system is read only. You can't install your own RPMs or packages. Um, you have to do a couple of different tricks to make files persist across reboots. Um, so it's it's much more an appliance model in the fashion of ESXi, but it's not as thin of a hypervisor. So all of the, the the command line tools or the bulk of the command line tools with which one is familiar uh, managing a Red Hat server, most of those translate and apply to the Rev uh, the hypervisor. As, as far as I can see, I, I, I haven't played with this a lot. I have to be honest about that. But KVM and Hyper-V uh, kind of resemble each other in a way that they're uh, components of your operating systems somehow, while uh, Zen and, uh, and uh, vSphere or ESXi or ESX even is its own installation in a way with nothing else and everything runs virtualized on top of that. Uh, so it, it, it seems to me, at least from what I've been reading, that they're kind of comparatively, that's how it, how it works. 
I'm not quite sure, as I said, but it, it looks like, like that from what I'm reading, at least. Okay. I don't, I don't I, like, like I said, I don't know enough about Zen to, to no. even be able to comment upon that. I think that's right uh, to a degree, although I believe because Zen um, integrates with the kernel, it, at least previously, it was the case that you could install a Zen kernel in just about any Linux distribution that supported it or provided it, or if you wanted to go out and do it on your own, um, you could then enjoy all of the, the virtualization benefits from within your familiar distribution already. Okay, it might, might be the case. I, I, as I said, I haven't been uh, paying that much attention to it, to be honest. So, uh, But that's all, everyone to their own, I guess. There's yeah, a, lot of, right. a lot of ways to skin a cat. Absolutely, right. Especially one in the background during a podcast, I guess. <laughs> that's my cat, yes. I will, I will not like edit the cat out. Just for... <laughs> Sorry. We'll credit the cat in the show notes. It's fine. So if I had a lot more time, uh, you know, during the workday and, and if I didn't have a family at home, you know, to take care of on the weekend, there are a lot of things in, in Rev that would be a lot of fun to play with and experiment that I just simply can't talk about. I don't, I don't know enough to talk about them. Um, you can do, they do offer. Just, just <laughs> yeah, we abandon uh, our families usually. Dejupe, with Dejupe the family. <laughs> <laughs> Down to a picture. They're, they're archived off, it's fine. Um yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot. I mean, um, one of it's got a it's got a a, a VDI actions. solution in it. It's got a okay. VDI solution, so you can virtualize clients and and uh, workstations. Um, and the, that can be Windows or Linux uh, workstations. So you can do a whole you know uh, virtualized desktop interface for all of your mobile users or uh, thin client users um, that uses either the VNC protocol or uh, Spice. And we've done a little bit of playing around with a Red Hat client using the Spice protocol. Uh, and our our very initial experience was pretty under, underwhelming, um, which is which is okay for us because that's not why we're going to be using this product. We're using it for server virtualization exclusively. And so um, if you thought but, Spice was underwhelming, just well, you didn't use VNC. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the the server consoles for all of our uh, virtualized servers are all uh, done over VNC, and we you know we use them long enough to bring up an SSH interface so that we can get into the box and use SSH. Yeah, it does does kind of seem to be the way. But in in terms of sort of other things which may or may not be at feature parity, um, and I do I, I wonder if there's things that as VMware guys we're used to having day in day out like the network design um, distributed switches, um, well live migration nowadays that seems to be pretty much a given. But some of the other sort of the um, the more optimization side, so uh, the dynamic resource scheduling. Uh, things like that are they still uh, available and present with uh, Red Hat, or is it something you kind of have to work around at a higher level within the applications or the, the Linux box systems, the, you know, the Linux guests themselves? Yeah, it depends on on what feature specifically we're talking about. It does support um, all of the robust networking we've needed to do, but you can't do much of that through the interface through the management interface, I'm sorry. Um, there's no vSwitch in the sense that VMware uses. It's just uh, 
you just configure the network interface card on the physical her- server itself. So we have four port cards on our servers. We trunk all those, and then we assign VLANs. We tag VLANs on those on that trunk, um, which is what we would have done in VMware anyways. But in order to do it, we actually have to go to each physical host to add the VLAN to the network stack, and then you have to reboot the host. And then the everything works just perfectly. Actually, you don't need to reboot the host. You just need to bring the interface. You need to put the, the host into maintenance mode, make your network changes, bring the network up, then remove the, the host from network or from maintenance mode. And that works. Um, and that's only because we're doing tagged VLANs on our, on our, ho- on our NICs on our trunk if we were not doing that if you if you had a much more simple network design the red hat management console allows you to manage those interfaces uh, you know one by one or to, to bond them um, but the the design that we're using is a little more complicated than the the tool currently supports so we have to do that manually uh, the other question was um, what's the other issue AJDRS. Kind of oh thing. right, right. Yeah. So um, it does support pretty rudimentary uh, load balancing. You can specify low, medium, and high for each individual server, for how or each individual guest rather, for how important it is uh, when it comes to migration. So if a host goes down, physical host goes down, those guests that are marked as high will be migrated first. You know, the fastest, and then anything else, medium or low, will get moved over after those. Um, it's it's not much more granular than that. You get high, medium, and low. Um, there are some performance uh, baselines you can specify. You can say if it gets if this host gets more than this many VMs or this much memory uh, utilized, then you know bleed off some hosts. There's um, bleed off some guests. I'm sorry. Um, we've only got, I think, 15 VM or uh, 15 guests running across a three-node cluster right now. We expect to get that up to about 30 or 45 by the end of the year, and then we'll really be able to to speak intelligently about how well the the HA stuff works or the DRS works. Uh, do, do you find um, updates? Uh, you know, updates tend to be the the bane of of every uh, admin, no, no matter what. Uh, Operating system you're running, um, and that an unupdated OS is necessarily one that's going to cause you problems at some point. It's a matter of when rather than if. Um, and the you know live, live migration of it has made uh, updates to to VMware pretty much trivial because you, you can do them during the middle of the day if you really wanted to. Um, and can you do the same sort of thing? Is there are the updates they pretty well coordinated? Um, or do they just fit in as part of your regular patch management process? There have been no updates released for Rev since we've deployed it, so I, I don't know. Um, it's my understanding that it would be very similar to the VMware process. You just simply transition all your guests off of the host, update it, bring it, you know, put it in maintenance mode, do the update. It should be an automated process through the management console, through what I've seen in the, the documentation. And then bring it out of maintenance mode, put the host back, and you're done. That yeah, sounds like a fairly fairly equivalent process, which is all good. How about uh, uh, host provisioning? Uh, are there any uh, pre-configured or pre 
kind of uh, set up ways to auto-provision hosts uh, and get them installed and configured, or do you, is that a manual process as well? Uh, give me a little more detail. What specifically, other than just like making a, a template, what, what do you want to know? Now, I, I'm thinking about the actual uh, uh, hosts themselves. I mean, in, installing KVM, configuring it, getting, every, uh, getting it uh, configured and joined into a cluster and whatever. Uh, oh, oh there, yeah. That, that's, that's trivially easy with the, the Red Hat Enterprise virtualization product, not the, the Rev, not a, a full Red Hat Enterprise Linux server, but the Rev, just the hypervisor. Um, it's, a, it's a simple little boot ISO. It's, I don't know, 50 megs or so, uh, 100 megs, I don't remember. Um, it asks you a handful of questions. It partitions your disks for you, and it asks you what the, the either the host name or the IP address is of your management server, and that's it. The installation takes about, I don't know, seven minutes. Okay, but could, can you uh, boot the uh, the actual host from a, from PXE or and have it auto-configure everything? Um, just have it, next time you restart that server, just let it reinstall itself and, and join the cluster again. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I believe there is a, Red Hat uses Kickstart. That's their um, yeah. auto-provisioning yeah. files. I believe mm-hmm. that the Rev uh, hypervisors do accept Kickstart files if on the boot. Uh, if you point it to the Kickstart at the answer file, uh, it'll answer everything and, and do it. We haven't done that. We've only had the three hosts, and we wanted to get the, the experience building them. Um, but right. yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question. I believe that is the case. I'd have to look that up to be sure, though. Okay. Uh, VMware uses Kickstart files for ESXi as well, which basically right, probably means you could hack PXD Manager from VMware to de- uh, uh, auto-deploy your KVM hosts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean Red Hat. Red Hat. I mean, I mean, uh, VMware is running Red Hat under the hood. It's never. It's never been clear to me why they don't just come out and say that. Yeah, the Service Console does or did. Not anymore. I think, I think at one point it did, and then they 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 do everything they can to hush that up now. I don't. And maybe they've changed it substantially enough that it's no longer just a, a Red Hat rebrand. I don't. I don't know. Uh, for ESXi, it's not Red Hat at all. It's a BusyBox. BusyBox, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but the, uh, the service console for 3.5 and ESX 4 and 4.1 uh, basically is uh, uh, Red Hat. The service console is a Red Hat, but the virtualization it doesn't run in the service console. The service console is a VM on its own. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually a sort of a virtualized sort of you know, para virtual thing sitting sitting on top of the, the underlying hypervisor, which is. Yeah. Is it 32 meg? Is that the figure that VMware always used to brand around us? Yeah, I think so. And that it it was that it's pretty dumb, really. It's just designed to allocate resources. Uh, That's all it does. Um, And that you you need the service console and you need the VM kernel stuff to be able to get it to network even. Ed, speaking of uh, flirtations with uh, other hypervisors, uh, I understand that you um, have uh, been been dipping your toes into Hyper-V. Yeah, sure. My company just recently bought um, a company on the west coast of the states, and um, since we're 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 very strictly a VMware shop, meaning every one of our group companies, everything has to be VMware. It has to be standard so we can manage it. More than for technology reasons or whatever, that's that's another story. But um, so I started looking into this um, this site. Pretty sizable company, maybe maybe um, 
five, uh, well, not so huge, but maybe five, uh, five hosts in a uh, Hyper-V cluster. And I started to look into it, get some discovery down, because I have to completely move it, redesign a new VMware cluster, and move all the VMs there. And about halfway through my design phase, uh, maybe a quarter way through my design phase, I actually ran into the point where both of the guys who um, managed it quit. So now I have to um, now I have to do kind of discovery on my own, and find out what it is exactly they have running on it, what what they have in the back end, storage, everything, and then just kind of I have about three months to come up with a design, um, a valid um, vSphere design to replace this one. Sounds like you have a VCDX case in front of your hands. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say just just follow follow the, the the documentation and do the more documentation you do the easier it would be for to turn that into a vcdx defense yeah sure that that if i ever yeah if i if i ever go and defend for vcdx that that'll be exactly the design i use because i mean it's not so huge but from my understanding with a yeah, VCDX, that's big enough easily yeah uh, with a vcdx defense you, you don't always have to be designing it for something really huge I, I, so one of the parts where size doesn't matter, actually, I think. But. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I've known people who, who've gone in to do it. Uh, they've done defense based around the three host cluster. Um, it's just about the importance of when you um, select something, know why you selected it, and know why you didn't select other things. And it's a pretty good methodology to uh, to follow in most of your designs, to be honest. Um, although you know, you know why you selected VMware because you don't give a stuff about any benchmarking between VMware and Hyper-V. You've already made the strategic choice to go down the VMware route, and they might have a great Hyper-V cluster. However, that's not really you know it's not flying the corporate colours, so you get you're you're being forced to change in. But as long as you put that kind of thing down, you might need to fluff it up a bit and say it nicer than I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I certainly, yeah, I certainly haven't heard about any any performance issues or any kind of problems, but that's just the thing. I I don't even know basically what their infrastructure is. So, I mean, I I have to make a design, do a discovery, make a design, and basically get airdropped out there to set the in, implement the whole thing. So I could run into a surprise or two once I get out there. Oh, it, it, it sounds like it'll be it's going to be quite an adventure. Um, yeah, sure. I'm I'm actually really looking forward to it, but. And it is it is it's the perfect storm for you know this is the sort of thing that's going to test all of your you've got a bit of consultancy type skills in there because I'm guessing you're actually having to now talk to people who don't have any idea any of their technical guys around there and find out well what have you got well we don't know well how can I find out and the discovery piece uh, I I've recently come to the conclusion that no matter how well you think you know your infrastructure there's a lot that you possibly don't know about it. Um, and if you do know your infrastructure, you're potentially in the, minor- in the minority. There are a lot of big companies out there that don't know what they've got. Absolutely. The, when, the when actual real estate... Do, they've got yeah. much more. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact that you're actually able to realize that there's stuff you don't know uh, actually helps you a lot. Uh, it, 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 the moment you think you know everything, you're kind of stuck there anyway. But if you if you actually realize that there's a lot of stuff going on in your infrastructure that you're not aware of, there's a basis for learning something. Uh, if you think you know everything, you won't learn anything anyway. So there's a, there's a lot of 
stuff going for you, the the actual realization of knowing that you don't know everything. A yeah. true techno- technological elitist would never talk that way, Christian. <laughs> I don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> but you could draw an amazingly tenuous link with Jurassic Park, and you have to hear me out for this one. It's not just the fact it's Unix, and obviously Scott knows Unix, so you know he, he could hack it if it was Jurassic Park. But um, in Jurassic Park, um, I don't think this was in the film, but it's in the book, and it talks about they um, they do a, a plot of all the dinosaurs, and they think they've got this X amount number of dinosaurs, and when they discover that the dinosaurs been breeding, so well, why don't you? Don't put in that you're expecting to see 250 dinosaurs. Just say you're expecting to see more. And it suddenly they discover they've they've had dinosaur sprawl, um, which is obviously like virtual machine sprawl, but with a lot more teeth. <laughs> the problem is all you have to do is bring in the IT version of the Jeff Goldblum, and he'll straighten everything out for you. That's called the cloud, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the case in Independence Day as well, isn't it? It's a, he plays the same person. It's just slightly more dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, once you expect, you know, if you put into your parameters, well, I've got 20 servers. And so if you only discover and look for 20 servers, then you'll only find 20 servers. If you look at it from the point of, well, I don't know what I've got, uh, find me something, anything that responds with a pulse, and we'll assume that that's part of our environment, then at least, you know, you know, you found the unexpected. But that, speaking of discovery like that, uh, that's something I don't don't understand at all. How come uh, this is the, uh, in the U.S. right? Mm-hmm. What East Coast or West Coast or whatever uh, it doesn't matter. But how how can two people just quit oh. and walk away and that's it? Well, uh, when, that's the beauty it, of U.S. notice periods, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, when, when, uh, yeah. Uh, but that, that's that's the thing I don't understand. I, I, if I go to work on Monday. And just say that's it. I've had enough. I have three months' notice. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, in the U.S., you could even leave the same day. I mean, literally, it's just these guys. They they got bought out. They started to realize, hey, we're in this huge VMware shop now. I mean, like a massive VMware shop, and we are the um, we're the minority here. Um, this is no good for us. They they just they hung out just long enough to find other other gigs, and then moved on. So Christian I, I in, in chopped liver. <laughs> Christian in Norway, if if you get fired, they have to give you three months' notice also though, don't they? Yeah, that's true. So uh, yeah, so it, the actually, US I, Okay, so if, if if I leave my uh employer notice on Monday, I would I would actually have to wait to the end of June and then have a three month grace period or uh, or whatever it's called, uh notice. Um uh, so I, I would have to to stay around for nearly four months if I were to to leave on Monday, uh, which is a long time, sure, but it's also security the other way around. If they were to fire me, they would have to pay me uh, for the remainder of that time as well, even if they want me to leave the same day, unless I've set fire to the boss or something. <laughs> yeah, it's basically it's basically the same thing here in Switzerland, also, and we have a um, a deal where if they're if they're letting you go. You can basically spend three days out of the five just looking for another job while they pay you. Which is, yeah, it's kind of nice. Well, Actually, I, I got a pretty sweet deal out of this uh, quite a few years ago. It's back in 2000, I think, where I got 
nine months pay when I left I think uh, in, a, in a single payment and then went straight into a new job which That's they kind didn't of know like of course being made redundant in the UK yeah sometimes yeah. you can get a big big payout but uh, I guess we're, that's we're basically what happens um, of it being a, most people unless you're particularly high up it's four weeks notice um, if you get a bit the, the further up the ladder you get that can go up to sort of eight weeks and then 12 weeks uh, in terms of notice period but even certainly my colleagues when I, I used to have them in the states uh, yeah two week notice period was the standard yeah, um, two that week. was yeah two weeks. People of my same same equivalents as well. So there was the the phrase, um, "You're no no further than two weeks from your last paycheck." Yeah, two Which weeks is, is a, but if they want to fire you, you should be five minutes from your last paycheck in the That's, uh, just the way it goes. It, yeah, it does seem like a somewhat more volatile market. I don't know whether that creates different. Um, it, Different atmospheres and different approaches to towards IT. Is it much? Does it make people slightly more risk averse? In that, well, if I do something and it screws up, and well, that's my that's my job. Whereas in the UK, if you do something and you screw up, it's like, well, okay, as long as you admit that you screw up and don't try and cover it up, and then work on it. Unless you've done something really stupid, you're not going to get sacked for it. Yeah, I've worked in actually both environments here, European and, and U.S., so I can tell you that from just from my point of view, the, the U.S. one, people are more, they're just more generally frightened about their job. And uh, I mean, it seems like you spend, uh, spend a lot more time dealing with the politics in that scenario. Whereas if if you're in Europe and you just think, oh, I'm not, I don't have to be that worried, or I have a lot of security, then you start to see either, yeah, there's good and bad sides to both of them. Uh, let me just put it that way without uh, sound like a deck. <laughs> no, I, I'd say it's, it's it swings and roundabouts really. Um, the as you say, there are most definitely good good and bad sides to it. Uh, if you're stuck in a company you don't want to be in, then you've uh, You've got a long way, you know. If Christian hypothetically decides to give his notice in, and if Christian's manager's leaving, apparently he doesn't. He's really happy with his job, so it's cool. Um, <laughs> but if he did, that's that's that could be four months of like stony cold looks from all of your colleagues, uh, uh, like you know, and you know they're going to be putting salt in your coffee. In the yeah, morning. and kind of kind of also the lame duck scenario. You know what I mean? Yeah, We're... because people stop people stop copying you in on emails and. You, you, because they know you're the flight risk. Why should they bother telling you anything cool or getting you involved in anything? Because you're off. Yeah. Uh, you, you you are effectively dead to them. You basically just kind of sit at your desk for four months. Yeah, it, it, it becomes almost a punishment. Well, cat again. Sorry. It de- depends on how... If, if they get a replacement in pretty quickly, you could... As long as you're going to, into a new job somewhere else, you you probably be able to make a deal of getting out of it earlier. But they have the uh, the they do have the option of keeping you until the uh, to the end of uh, of the three month notice period. So it, does it does that does the do you guys find that that uh, increases tenure and stability of employees at their employer or or do you still see kind of the job hopping in the states it's not uncommon for someone to work just one year at a job and then go somewhere else and, and kind of climb the ladder as they improve their skills is is that also happening over there as well yeah it's not i don't think it's making that much of a difference on that um 
actually. It, it kind of depends. In the company I work for now, that we've always had a lot of people working there for a long, long time. Uh, some of them been there 20, 25 years, 30 years. And then you have all the young ones uh, that are come in there and they're staying around a year or two and then moving along to something else. So there's a good mixture of both, actually. But the last few years have looks like it's uh, easier for people to move jobs and hop around a lot more than it was, let's say, five, seven years ago, at least uh, in, in our offices. So it, it seems like the turnaround is a bit bigger now than it used to be. Yeah, I, th I think a certain amount of staff churn is, is A, inevitable, and B, a good thing, because it's going to bring fresh ideas into a company. Um, so the job hoppers, eh, not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, oh, no, I certainly wasn't wasn't trying to imply that, although uh, many hiring managers in the States, at least, will look at someone who has been, you know, to three jobs in three years and think that, why should I hire them? They're not going to stay. True. True. Uh, it depends on the role you're having. If you're there to implement a specific thing or a specific project or whatever, it's uh, that's fine to stay there for a year and get that done and do something else. So it, it, I guess it depends on what kind of position you're looking for candidates for. So, um, something we haven't talked about, we didn't have a chance, we actually meant to on the last podcast, but we didn't have a chance. Um, myself, Christian, and Chris will all be in Boston next um, next week for uh, Tech Field Day 6 for the first ever uh, virtualization Tech Field Day. Uh, we're, we're hoping to be able to uh, get some get some good podcasts done while we're there, maybe more than, more than one, hopefully, and maybe even throw in something new like some, some videos or... Oh no! <laughs> no, no, no! People please. don't want to see us. But I, Truly. I think there may well be sort of the uh, what I, I came up with the marvelous marketing term of V-suit bite size. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we've uh, we've all been purchasing some uh, mobile recorders, so it, you know it may maybe the three of us, uh, it may be just a couple of us. Uh, basically, there's going to be an awful lot of people uh, with something to say from around the community, uh, not just delegates and presenters. But at the uh, Beantown uh, Party as a Service, which there are still tickets available for, if you uh, log on and are around Boston at f for, to go to Fenway Park on June the 9th, you uh, you two can take part. Uh, they're free tickets are organised by the VM Underground guys who uh, organise the the legendary warm up party as a service for VM VM World in the states. And yeah. you will need to wear a sweater vest if you. Since, uh, since, uh, you know what? I have been looking at sweater vests and I have been liking. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, though, Sean Clark isn't isn't going to be there. Yeah, though, so. say it's kind of June. That's not. I, I'm I'm a naturally fairly sweaty person to start with. Yeah. You don't want to be putting me in something that's going to help me perspire. Um, it's 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 not a good look. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, there's going to be loads of people there. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that there's a couple of people I think that are going to come into it that they're going to be people I, I'd certainly like to get recorded on and um, 
yeah, we're, we're just going to try and maybe there might be five, ten minute conversations. It's just going to be whatever, whatever we could stick, stick, stick someone in front of an MP3 recorder, really. Yeah, we might wind up with a few, a few uh, drunken recordings at the at the party. It might be a little bit fun. Drunken, surely us, not no, we're much not better. us. No, I don't. I don't I'm I don't know. It's just, I think some of you guys have experience with that. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just, I, but I, I, I never have to edit recordings based on what I've been drinking that night. Uh, okay. <laughs> Speaking of drinking stuff, Scott, Scott or Skippy, I haven't noticed. I haven't called you Skippy all day. That's kind of weird. No. <laughs> I've been calling you Skippy for years. Uh, you make your own drink, don't you? I do. I've been uh, homebrewing for about two years now. Ah, cool. I haven't haven't tried to look into that yet it's uh it's a lot easier than a lot of people think it's it's just you know it's like baking you just add ingredients and wait uh it's not terribly difficult uh i haven't made a a very bad batch of beer yet but i'm also not uh one of these guys who gets really into the competition there's there's uh the beer judge competition program where you rate beers and against various factors and as long as it's drinkable i'm happy well, don't you have to like keep the beer at some kind of certain temperature when when you're brewing it? Like that was, yeah. that was the trouble I had when I tried it was I, I could never keep it at that exact temperature. Yeah, fermentation is uh, is an issue. The the temperature control for fermentation is where it matters. Um, if you're brewing ales, which is what I like to drink, anything really from about seventy to seventy five, eighty degrees is okay. Um, like I said, I haven't had any bad beers out of, and I've had some pretty un unpleasant uh fermentation processes uh very out of style but uh you know it works <laughs> excellent that sounds uh so- sounds uh, pretty fun i mean I- i'm guessing that in, in the uk home brewing is uh i think it-, it it seems to be much more of a an older person's uh pastime uh, although you can actually get these like homebrew spirits, well, they're more sort of liqueurs. And I, I, I got some for a Christmas present last year, and it made these kind of shots, and they were horrible, but they did the trick. I think, uh, from my perspective, the the big difference there is that you guys are steeped in good beer to begin with. Uh, in the U.S., it's been it's been you know Budweiser, Budweiser, Budweiser so much. And and uh, the the really to my to, to my palate at least unpleasant lager beers these you know Budweiser's Bush uh, Bud Light all these things, um, but in the last couple of years there's I don't know ten fifteen years maybe there's been this real resurgence in craft brewing. Yeah, I've I've noticed that on my um, got into fairly, it and they yeah fairly infrequent trips to the U.S. Um, and I've noticed that beer has been getting a lot better. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I haven't been there in uh, a few years. That has to have changed after I was there the last time. American beer hasn't been a great success. Well, yeah, you were always <laughs> looking at the the big name brewers yeah, like Miller and Budweiser. Yeah, yeah, all that's crap. But yeah. I mean, like especially Chicago, where where I came from originally, has had a really good one called Goose Island. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, it all goes in cycles, though. The problem is these really good craft brewers show up, and then they start making money. They start making money, and bang, they get bought out by a big guy, and then everything sucks again. 
Although the big guy just got bought too. Anheuser-Busch got bought out by InBev. So they're the same people that make Bass Ale uh, and um, Heineken and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and some of it's actually quite good. So it, it, the, the the playing field's definitely changing. Excellent. Well, hopefully uh, all three of us will be able to sample sample Massachusetts' finest. Uh, Samuel in, in Adams. Sample. Uh, yeah, Sam Adams is all right, but you know, there, I, I, I'd like to think there's got to be something better local as well. Yeah, there's there's a there's a few. Cool. Well, hopefully we'll be trying uh, more than more than a few. <laughs> <laughs> Small ones, of course. <laughs> well, I, I guess that pretty much sums it up today. Uh, I, I just want to say thanks to to Scott for popping by. It's uh. Uh, it, it's been weird actually talking to you. Uh, that, uh, it's a strange uh, sensation to actually do that, considering how how much we're, we've talked on IRC and whatever o- over the last few years. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's been uh, it's been five years, I think, since we yeah. first met online. Yeah, yeah. Think so. yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's really interesting to to actually talk to you. Uh, Albeit virtually via the network, anyway. But we we need to find a way to meet up sometime. You, sh- you should take a trip down to Boston, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Next week might be short notice. <laughs> ah, come on, that'll, that'll be fine. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Scott. I- I'm really happy you were uh, able to get on here and, and being kind of the uh, the dark side of virtualization guy uh, with us, uh, since we're all used to uh, working with the VMware stuff. Uh, and also want to mention that uh, Scott has been called Skippy since, I don't know, since college or something. Uh, so his blog is typically available on skippy.net as well. Uh, we'll be sure to make that uh, a part of the show notes as well as uh, links to a lot of other stuff that we've been talking about. Right, well, thanks very much for having me. It's been, a, it's been a fun conversation. Okay, thanks for listening to episode 11 of vSoup. Um be sure to check us out on www.vsoup.net. Also, um, be sure to check for us on iTunes. Haven't mentioned that for a couple weeks. And from there, um, be sure to follow us at, uh, at uh, vsoup underscore podcast. And we'll be hearing from all you guys next week at Tech Field Day 6. Yay! Yay!